0: people of all backgrounds will celebrate and defend our most precious gift, life. We continue to recognize the Supreme Court rightfully returned the power of protecting the unborn to the people. Yet we must never be complacent in our moral duty to stand up for the sanctity of life. Today we'll take up two measures supporting that very notion. First of all, we'll consider H.R. 6914, the Pregnant Students' Rights Act. The goal of any uh, college is to educate, support, and empower the students as they chart their path forward. Each pupil has a distinct journey, and I think we can all agree that resources and guidance offered on campus should reflect that. This bill ensures that pregnant students are well informed about their rights and the support they can access. When making consequential choices about their future, those expecting should know all the options and tools available to them. They should not be discriminated against or marginalized to believe that they don't have life-affirming alternatives. H.R. 6914 requires colleges and universities to guarantee pregnant women are forthrightly aware of their rights, uh, educational accommodations, and protections under the law, so women can balance college and pregnancy. Furthering the goal of maternal assistance, We'll also discuss H.R. 6918, the Supporting Pregnant and Parenting Women and Families Act. The Biden administration has proposed a new discriminatory regulation impacting expecting mothers uh, in need and uh, would specifically ban pregnancy centers from receiving federal dollars through the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, or TANF uh, program. The White House is stripping uh, resources from facilities that provide women and families with medical services, emotional support, and supplies like diapers and parental, uh, excuse me, prenatal vitamins. The result is American women having diminished options for care and fewer alternatives to abortion. H.R. 6918 will prevent the defunding of these critical health centers. It's a direct step in safeguarding access to care and support needed as parents ready to bring a new child into the world. Finally, I'll uh, turn to House Resolution 957. Our southern border has plunged into unprecedented uh, chaos under President Biden. His administration has lost operational control and unleashed a full-blown humanitarian and security crisis. Uh, These lax uh, policies uh, have incentivized an historic number of illegal crossings and the ramifications are much more than the sheer numbers or an overwhelmed border patrol. Just last week, New York City elementary students lost access to their school facility to house migrants. This is the only the latest example of many negative consequences faced by communities across the nation. In fact, the only people helped by this situation are drug smugglers, human traffickers, and terrorists. The failure of the Biden administration to address these serious blunders is long overdue. Uh, House Resolution 957 calls upon President Biden and his administration to end their disastrous open borders policy that have turned every state into a border state. I'll now yield to our ranking member, my good friend Mr. McGovern, for any remarks he wishes to make. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And, um, And unfortunately,
1: we're once again wasting more time this week on extreme MAGA culture wars. First, we have two bills that are part of Republicans' ongoing push to ban abortion nationwide. It's absurd. I mean, every single week we're here with bills to criminalize abortion, ban abortion, punish people who get an abortion, and push these extreme bills that take away women's freedoms. H.R. 6914 makes it harder for students to receive complete and accurate information on their rights and options regarding abortion. (laughs) It omits any requirements for schools to distribute medically accurate and comprehensive information regarding pregnancy, including information on abortion services. Rather than providing support to students, by like ensuring that they have better family-friendly campus housing, uh, accessible and affordable child care, flexible attendance policies and lactation accommodations, H.R. 6914 accomplishes only one goal, stigmatizing students who seek abortion care. We also have H.R. 6918, the Supporting Pregnant and Parenting Women and Families Act, a deeply misguided name for a bill that does no such thing. We hear from Republicans about how pro-life they are. I mean, give me a break. These bills aren't about life, because if they were, Republicans would be advancing policies that actually support life. We could be addressing the growing childcare crisis, expanding access to paid family and medical leave. Or tackling childhood poverty, or trying to end hunger that exists in this country amongst millions and millions of children, uh, I think my my our former colleague Barney Frank from Massachusetts, I think, put it accurately when he said that Republicans seem to believe that life begins at conception but ends at birth. Um, instead, uh, it seems the Republican the Republican position is that, you know, uh, you know, as, as I said, that's what, you know, he was absolutely right because H.R. 6918 continues to divert federal dollars intended for poor families to dangerous anti-abortion centers that put women's health at risk. To be clear, these anti-abortion centers deceive people seeking access to abortion care. They are not regulated and are frequently non-medical, meaning they can severely jeopardize the health of women who go to them. And again, it's no secret that the House Republicans are working towards a national abortion ban. The NRCC chair recently said it himself. Voters believe the Republican position is, quote, will throw you in jail if you get an abortion, end quote. And let me tell you, the voters are right. That's what Republicans want to do. Don't take my word, it's already happening. Across the country, from Texas to Kentucky to South Carolina, Republicans are advancing legislation that seeks to criminalize abortion care. We're also here today to consider another extreme MAGA messaging bill on the border. This is a do-nothing press release in the form of a non-binding resolution. It's all about turning the House of Representatives into the arm arm of the uh, the Trump campaign. That's it. Uh, And no matter how many times MAGA Republicans scream and shout, uh, the border is not open. House Democrats have have been ready from day one of this Congress to work across the aisle and develop a thoughtful bipartisan solution to fix issues at the border. But Republicans don't want that. They don't want to solve any of the border security problems because if something were to get done, Republicans would no longer be able to campaign on it. And in fact, Speaker Johnson literally gave away the game over the weekend. He told Republicans he doesn't want an immigration or border deal with Democrats because then they all can't demagogue the issue. It's pathetic. This is all about creating a distraction from Republican disarray. Each measure we are considering today Waste time as we barrel toward a government shutdown, and this Republican majority is still in chaos. They had a fifth rule go down uh, last week because of the turmoil in their own conference. They continue to bring us to the brink of a government shutdown, despite the fact they've had months and months to work on appropriations. And they have no vision or plan to fight for the American people who expect a heck of a lot more uh, from us than these awful, awful bills. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back.
0: Without objection, any prepared statements that our witnesses may have will be included in the record. I'd like to welcome our first panel: two of our very good friends, uh, Chairwoman Virginia Fox and Ranking Member Bobby Scott from the Committee on Education and Workforce. Chairman Fox, I welcome your testimony.
2: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank the members for being here. And uh, I thank the ranking member for that tribute to Dan and. Uh, for calling attention to the impact that diabetes has in this country. Uh, thank you Mr. Chairman and members of committee for being here. H.R. 6914, the Pregnant Students Rights Act, offers a conduit through which pregnant women who are students can receive both guidance and assistance during a deeply personal and sensitive time in their lives. This legislation would ensure that universities offer the appropriate breadth of resources and information so pregnant students can carry a baby to term while continuing their education. This includes allowing female students to change a class schedule to attend doctor visits. What's more, this legislation will properly inform pregnant students of their recourse to file a Title IX complaint with the Department of Education. Mr. Chairman, the core of this legislation is about ensuring unfettered and convenient access to information. H.R. 6914 requires information to be mailed regularly to students and appear in student handbooks at each orientation at student health or counseling centers and on the institution's website. Caring for an unborn child while pursuing rigorous post-secondary coursework is certainly not an easy lift. It's a reality that many face without the tools that this legislation would ensure. I urge the committee to support H.R.
3: 6914, and I yield back.
0: Ranking Member Scott, you're now recognized for
3: your opening statement. Thank you, Chairman Cole, Ranking Member McGovern, and thank you for um, entering into the record. Uh, Dan Turton's obituary, it outlines a very inspiring and remarkable life. So thank you very much, members of the Rules Committee. This uh, evening, I'm speaking in opposition to H.R. 6914, so-called Pregnant Students Rights Act. On its face, a bill may appear to ensure pregnant students are informed of resources available to them and how they can continue to access their education while pregnant. The impact, regrettably, is much more sinister. It attempts to dissuade students from considering their full reproductive options and makes it even more difficult for them to get full and accurate information about their rights, including rights that are already protected under Title IX of the Education Amendments under 1972. And let me repeat: everything in the bill is already protected under Title IX as the bill provides information about some of those rights under Title IX, including how to, including how to uh, complain, how to file a complaint with the Department of Education. However, the information in the bill is only partial in that it leaves many pregnant students, like those who are facing pregnancy loss or those who are choosing to terminate their pregnancy, in the dark about their rights under federal civil rights law. So it does not provide students with um, a description of all of their rights, just some of their rights, selective rights. Students already face numerous challenges on campus, including mental health problems, financial and food insecurity, academic. Uh, difficulties to name a few. Regrettably, this bill would make life even more challenging for students by omitting the comprehensive sexual and reproductive health information they actually need. For example, the bill fails to require schools to inform students about contraception, which would help students avoid unplanned pregnancies, their rights and resources if they experience a miscarriage and vital resources if they need to terminate a pregnancy due to health-related emergencies. Additionally, if a student decides to carry a child to term, this bill would not even provide any additional funding, such as child care, nutrition, affordable housing options, or other critical support, so the bill provides partial information, but no help. That's why dozens of health and reproductive rights organizations, such as the National Women's Law Center, The National Partnership of Women and Families and the American Civil Liberties Union have stated that H.R. 6914, quote, falls far short of the protections that are actually necessary for pregnant and parenting students and and their children. In conclusion, Mr. Chairman, women should be able to control their own bodies and futures, but by keeping students in the dark about their healthcare choices, resources, and rights available to them. H.R. 6914 would deprive pregnant students of their right to decide what is best for them and their families while offering no services. In a post rogue world where women face state-sanctioned abortion bans and complicated legal situations and challenges to access health care, we should be working to inform women and, children, women and students of all of their, protective, of their reproductive rights and protections. This bill just does the opposite, so I oppose the legislation and urge my colleagues to do the same. look forward to your questions, and yield back. I thank our witnesses for their testimony. The chair will forego any
0: uh, opening questions, and now turn to the distinguished <laughs> vice chairman of the committee, Dr.
4: Burgess, for any questions you might have for our panel. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Before I get to questions, I just have to say the problem at the border is not an immigration problem, it is a security problem, and this country needs to wake up and recognize that and deal with it as such. All of the happy talk about immigration reform is not going to solve the problem that exists today in Texas and by proxy in other states around the country. Now, the bill in front of us today, Dr. Fox, I appreciate your eloquent summary, you describe it as a conduit for guidance and assistance, and I I think that's exactly right. I'm, I'm at a loss to explain the statement of administration policy that opposes this. I, I can't see why they would be, why the president would be opposed to a conduit for guidance and assistance. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll have to leave it to them to explain why the uh, why the the veto threat exists, but. I appreciate you all doing the work on this. I appreciate the, the work that you did in taking testimony and arriving at the conclusion writing legislation and look forward to voting for it on the floor. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. i yield back.
0: Thank you. I now turn uh, to my very good friend, the ranking member, for any questions he might have. Well,
1: I'll, I'll ask unanimous consent to ensure in the record the statement of administration policy. Without objection. Uh, and, I mean, the, the, I, there's nothing really to say here. I mean, uh, this is another... In a series of really bad bills that uh, I think really is offensive to women, and um, and so I will I will I will speak about this on the floor tomorrow. I yield back.
0: Thank you very much. And I'll go to my good friend from from Pennsylvania for any uh, questions he
5: might have. For the thank party. you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate it. I just want to thank both witnesses for coming in and providing testimony. And without I yield back.
0: Thank you very much. And now go to my other very good friend from Pennsylvania. Gentle lady is recognized for any questions she may have for the
5: panel.
6: Thank you. Um, I appreciate the um, list of um, measures which would actually help promote um, the health and well-being of student parents, um, which the um, ranking member, Mr. Scott, listed. I would add to that, you know information if you have a child born with a disability on what kinds of services and supports might be necessary because that obviously also comes into, um, play here when we're talking about um, students having children. Um, but I, I too am very concerned by the fact that this uh, is a very clumsy attempt to put a fist on the scale with respect to um, promoting the anti abortion agenda, and one only has to look at the finding sections of this bill, which repeats a litany of anti abortion. Uh, allegations, unsupported by facts. And so for that reason, I will be opposing this bill as well. Thank you.
7: I yield back.
0: Thank you very much. Now I uh, recognize a very, very good uh, friend from
7: Minnesota for any questions she may have for our panel. Well, Mr. Chair, you have a lot of good friends, so go ahead for you. <laughs> well, I try to. <laughs> well, first of all, I just want to say thank you, uh Chairwoman fox, Chair fox for bringing this in front of us, because I think that it is important that we empower women with information. Because if you have the more information, the more informed decision a woman can make in whatever situation uh, they may be in. And so I appreciate having additional information for women. And I think I I wish that uh, the other side of the aisle would see that, that it is helpful to women for more information. And that's how they make an informed choice. But um, and with that, I thank you for bringing it forward. And I look forward to voting for it on the floor.
0: Thank you, gentlelady. I will recognize my good friend from Colorado. Uh, the gentleman uh, is recognized for any questions he might have for the panel.
8: I thank the chairman uh, and want to thank Madam Chair uh, and a ranking member for their testimony from being here uh, today. I want to follow up on a point that my colleague referenced about, uh, in particular, H.R. 6914, uh, the, the Pregnant Students Rights Act, and this notion that that it's designed to simply provide more information. And so, just to drill down a bit on this, Madam Chair, On page five of the bill, uh, in section two, uh, it's titled Information Content, and I'll just read this. It's the information described in this paragraph is the following, subparagraph A, a list of resources on campus and in the community that exist to help a pregnant student in carrying the baby to term and caring for the baby after birth. Do you see that language
2: there? uh, Subparagraph A.
8: Page five, subparagraph A. Uh-huh. It starts with a list of resources? Sure. Okay. So a list of resources on campus and in the community that exist to help a pregnant student in carrying the baby to term and caring for the baby after birth. What are those resources that this bill is contemplating?
2: Well, it would depend on the community. It would depend on what the community has to offer. Uh, there are no universal
8: the- resources, res- irrespective of what community you're in. I mean, I, I take this language to be that the federal, you're acquiring these institutions of higher education to promulgate resources, and you're saying that every school's booklet is going to be different.
2: No, we're saying that, uh, that what exists, we're not requiring them. We're not requiring them to create any additional resources. We're just asking them to, to provide a list of the resources on campus and in the community. There's no requirement to create any resources.
8: So what would those resources be?
2: Well, um, on, there might, might be on child campus uh, facilities, um, childcare facilities. There might be, uh, there'll be probably uh, in the community, um, childcare facilities. There might be um, uh, information on... Um, food pantries, for example, mm-hmm. if the if a student needed that kind of help, uh, there might be information on um, pediatricians who are in the area. I let mean, me let me follow a- up on anybody the food can pa- think if you have a baby, there. What kind of resources do you need?
8: Sure. Well, so with respect to the food pantry, it's a good example. I went online. The American Pregnancy Association has a list of financial resources that are available to pregnant mothers to to better inform them about the resources that might be available. The first item on their list is WIC, Women, Infants, and Children Supplemental Fund Program. Right? You're familiar with WIC? Yes. Of course. Right? The Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children. It's the number one resource on this uh, website that I, you know, uh, went on. My understanding is that House Republicans, 190 of them in this Congress, voted to rescind $500 million in WIC funding. You recall that vote back in September? Uh,
2: Not in particular uh, the numbers or anything about the vote.
8: Well, I can represent to you that in September of last year, 190 House Republicans voted to rescind $500 million in WIC funding. Um, And that included uh, you as well. The next item on the list here is pregnancy Medicaid is listed as one of the financial resources. Uh, Of course, many House Republicans, most House Republicans oppose the expansion of Medicaid. I take it you do as well. Is that a fair
2: assessment? I, that's a fair assessment, but I have no idea what that has to do with this bill. Well, but what i This is a very simple bill to, to help students. It's a very pro-student Here's bill. what I'll, here's
8: what I'll suggest to you, Madam Chair. This is why it matters. The American Pregnancy Association lists as financial resources. One of those resources available to pregnant women is pregnancy Medicaid, so that they can access health care for them and for their child. House Republicans, including yourself, oppose expanding Medicaid for pregnant mothers in a variety of different states across the country. That's why it's relevant. And and as you can see, where I'm struggling is understanding what information you are compelling these institutions of higher education to actually provide. To the extent that it's any of these resources, they're all resources that House Republicans seem intent on cutting. And and those are just a few. I mean, the next one on here is temporary assistance for needy families, TANF. Again, a program that House Republicans have voted to decrease over the course of this Congress. So I I guess what I'm getting at, and, and maybe you can help me understand this, is if the goal here is to provide, as the bill says, a list of resources to assist pregnant mothers and if we know those resources, Pregnancy Medicaid, TANF, WIC, a variety of others, are so critically important, why do House Republicans seem so intent on cutting them all? That, that's really my question.
2: Again, um, you're, you're creating a store of dog here. This bill, uh, what was that? This bill is pro-student. I, surely members on both sides of the aisle want to support women becoming mothers and college graduates. There are resources now. Whether or not we oppose some of those resources being funded by taxpayers at the federal level is irrelevant to this discussion. They exist. Since they exist, so the plan then is- the students should know about them and take advantage of them. It's simple as that. You Again, you guys are throwing out straw dogs constantly uh, about Madam, this bill.
8: Madam Chair, I would simply say it seems to me the plan is to mandate the provision of a list of resources of programs that Republicans are trying to dismantle in Washington. I don't really understand the utility in compelling the production of a list that says, hey, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program resources are available to you, unless Republicans have a majority in the Congress, in which case it's not worth much more than the piece of paper that this bill apparently is compelling the production of. But again, I'm not, I I guess what I would say, Madam Chair, and it's with all respect, I, I would be far more interested, I think, in debating and moving forward a bill that funds these resources, that funds these critical programs, TANF, WIC, SNAP, expanding Medicaid, uh, to ensure that pregnant mothers have those resources, as opposed to passing a bill that mandates the creation of a list that lists them out. Ranking Member Scott, I know well, I, I want well, to give you may, an opportunity.
2: I'd like to respond sure, to that. Sure, of course. We are the Education Committee. We're dealing with students. We're not the Appropriations Committee. That's Mr. Cole and other folks. Uh, so, so perhaps, um, since Mr. Cole's here, he can hear you say what you want funded. What should be funded is not in our purview, but these things already exist, and so we just want to make sure that students are aware of them, and we want the students to be taken care of. We want their babies to be taken care of. We want them to complete their college education, and so whatever exists, they should have access to it, and if they don't already know about it, we want the school to tell them. Very simple bill, very pro-student, not anti-anything, We're not here to speak against WIC or any of those things. That's a different subject. Thank you.
8: I I hear you, Madam Chair, and I hope the appropriators hear us as well. I'm not on the Appropriations Committee, but the only uh, caveat I suppose I would add is that you you keep on referencing these programs existing. They exist for now. House Republicans have worked very hard to cut them to the bone over the last 14 months. So uh, you know, the fact that you'd like to provide a list of resources around WIC or SNAP or TANF uh, to pregnant mothers while the House Republican majority seeks to defund all of these programs just seems a bit um, disconnected, in my view, from the, the views and the values uh, and the wishes of the American people. But, Ranking Member Scott, I want to give you an opportunity to-
3: Thank you. And I think your comments highlight a real shortcoming of the legislation that gives partial information to begin with. Doesn't give any information on contraception, uh, resources if you experience a miscarriage, if you're going to choose to terminate the pregnancy for any, for any reason. Just gives you partial information. And then, in terms of resources, it doesn't give you anything. Um, so, that's um, if you are trying to make an informed decision, you can't make an informed decision if you're only hearing one side. Uh, I would also say to the gentlelady from Pennsylvania, when you talked about the allegations, we did ask for a documentation for the um, uh, findings, mm-hmm. and the uh, sponsor of many of the one of the major parts of that finding was unable to provide documentation. Thank I thank the ranking member, I thank the chair, uh, and
9: uh, I yield the balance of my
0: time. Thank you. Gentlelady from New Mexico is recognized for any questions she might have for the panel.
9: Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, Madam Chairwoman, uh, both today and at the hearing, there is a statement that this is about providing information uh, to pregnant women uh, to make sure that they can make informed decisions. As my colleague from Pennsylvania pointed out, the findings of this bill tell you what it is about. This is a bill to attack the ability of college women to make informed decisions and to make decisions about whether or not they want to have an abortion and whether or not, uh, if they choose to carry the pregnancies, how to do it uh, and how to do it in a way that makes it healthy for themselves and for their children, especially because we know that uh, college mothers have a hard time, that they uh, go hungry more often than uh, their counterparts who aren't um, mothers who don't carry children carry children determined. So we need to give them the kind of resources that they deserve. Uh, but it's really, once again, you know extreme Republicans just want to keep women in the dark. That's what this bill tells me because they don't really want to know what's available to them. In committee markup, Representative Jair Paul submitted an amendment to provide pregnant students with information about the kinds of essential programs we're talking about so that their babies can stay healthy, like Medicaid, like SNAP, like women, infant, and children. Uh, so this would have been an amendment which, if we care about providing women with information, uh, would have been, I would have thought, supported by Republicans. Uh, Chairwoman Fox, tell me, how many Republicans voted for Representative Jayapal's amendment? Oh, I
2: don't believe any did.
9: So there were zero Republicans who cared about providing pregnant college women with information they need to keep their uh, babies healthy, to keep themselves healthy while they're pregnant. I'm uh, sorry. Uh, uh, it, they voted you? against that. Every single one voted against that amendment. There was another amendment, Representative Stevens submitted an amendment to make sure that pregnant students would have information about miscarriages. Because we know that 10 to 20% of pregnancies result in miscarriages. She had an impassioned speech about the importance of making sure that pregnant college women knew about this so that they could save their own lives if necessary. Because we keep reading about the stories of women Who are pregnant in states like Texas and across this country who cannot get the care they need because of the draconian laws. And so miscarriages are becoming a source of potential death for women. So how many Republicans voted for Representative uh, Stevens' amendment, Chairwoman?
2: Uh, My memory is none. Not a
9: single one. So this isn't about making sure that women have information. Because if it were to have full information, they'd have full information. And Republicans have said no. And these provisions aren't just smart. They're good public health policy decisions. We should be about in Congress saying, what is good for public health? How do we do that? How do we make sure that women have full access to information? You know, I want to keep Congress. I want to keep Congress out of the doctor's office when women are making decisions. I want to keep Congress out of the doctor's office, whether you're a woman in rural America, in urban America, suburban America, or on a college campus, because women deserve to be making these decisions with full information, with conversations with their own faith, their own doctrine, their own loved ones. And we should not be dictating that they follow what's in this bill. Uh, and for that, you know, I would urge my colleagues to vote against this. I don't know if you want to add anything, ranking member.
3: I think you've said it very well.
2: OK, thank you. with that, I yield may, back. May I, may I speak on that, and Mr. General Chair? Is this bill, <laughs> contrary to my colleague saying keeps women in the dark, does everything we can to help students, or female students, who find themselves pregnant. And who want to carry their baby to term. This is not at all about any of the issues that our colleagues are talking about. What we assume is all of the things that are going, all the resources will be listed. We did not see a need to try to list certain resources that are available. We want the schools to assume what to list. This is a very pro student bill. It says absolutely nothing about abortion. Uh, It's totally mischaracterized by our colleagues on the other side of the aisle. We assume, again, that everybody wants pregnant women, pregnant students, to have the best information that they can to be successful and to carry their babies successfully. It's impossible to understand the characterization of this piece of legislation. I yield
0: back. Thank you very much. Uh, The gentleman from Texas was asked for recognition to make a comment. Mr.
4: Chairman, if I could, for a point of clarification, Medicaid created in 1965 a shared federal state program. Had within it several populations that were going to be covered, blind age, disabled, feeble elderly, pregnant women, and children under a certain income level. That was the original. refer to it oftentimes as the legacy population in Medicaid. When the Affordable Care Act passed, Medicaid was vastly expanded to include childless, non-working adults. The Supreme Court said states can't be coerced into expanding Medicaid, so some states did, some states did not. But in states that did not, you still have coverage as a pregnant individual, a pregnant woman, because that was the original compact in the state of Texas, It's 57% federal share, uh, 43% state share. That is the law that existed prior to the Affordable Care Act. And whether or not, irrespective of Medicaid expansion, that coverage is available to pregnant women. What I do need to add is in the past couple of years, the Committee on Energy and Commerce has done a lot of work on this in an effort to deal with problems that occur after childbirth it was decided that a longer period of coverage after delivery should be available to states, and so a state plan option was made available and passed into law that states can extend coverage to a full year after delivery, which I think is a good idea. But it was not an expansion of Medicaid. It was taking care of of the original population in the way it was supposed to be taken care of. And I just wanted to make that clarification, Mr. Chairman, because sometimes these things get conflated, and I'll yield back.
0: Thank you very much. Are there any additional questions or comments? Uh, Mr. Chairman? Any gentle recognized?
9: Thank you. And uh, the uh, chairwoman uh, noted that this bill uh, said nothing about abortion. I would just point out for the record that uh, on uh, uh, page three, Line Eleven, there is a reference to abortion on Line 12, there is a reference to abortion on Line 20, there is a reference to abortion on Line 4, on um, Page 4, Line 1, there is a reference to abortion on page four. Line four, there is a reference to abortion on line, uh, Page 4, Line line, four, li- page four, line ten, there is a reference to abortion. This bill is very much about abortion. And with that, I yield back. Thank you back. Thank-you, Mr.
0: Chair. Thank you very much. I want to thank both of our witnesses for their testimony today. And, uh, Gentle, uh, lady and gentlemen are excused. Yeah. Thank you. I'd like to welcome our second panel, uh, Representative Fishbach. Uh, you can uh, deliver either from your chair or that, that would be fine. <laughs> uh, from the Committee on Ways and Means and uh, representing Fishbach, I welcome your testimony.
7: This is my first time before the Rules Committee. So be kind.
0: (laughs) Gentlemen, ladies recognized for testimony.
7: Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, Today we're considering the Supporting Pregnant and Parenting Women and Families Act, which would block the Biden administration rule that attempts to divert resources away from pregnancy resource centers that provide life-saving and life-affirming services and resources to pregnant women and their families. I am proud to have introduced this legislation, along with my Ways and Means colleague, Representative Claudia Tenney from New York, who couldn't be here because she is, uh, her flight is delayed, and Representative Chris Smith from New Jersey. In October of last year, the Department of Health and Human Services published a proposed rule that would, that could prohibit states from funding pregnancy resource centers through the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families or TANF, the block program, block grant program. Excuse me. If this rule takes effect, women in America will have fewer alternatives to abortion and less access to maternal care. The Supporting Pregnant and Parenting Women and Families Act protects pregnant uh, women's access to maternal care by prohibiting HHS from finalizing, implementing, or enforcing the proposed rule as it relates to placing restrictions on the state use of TANF dollars for pregnancy resource centers. Pregnancy resource centers provide vital resources used by pregnant and parenting women every day to support the health and pregnancy of their child. Nothing in in the bipartisan law that created TANF provides the Biden administration the authority to regulate TANF in this manner and unfairly single out and target these centers. Pregnancy resource centers provide everything from diapers, food, baby clothes, transportation, parenting classes, relationship education, and prenatal vitamins. They provide both emotional support and tangible benefits and materials to women with unplanned pregnancies that clearly meet the purposes of TANF to provide assistance to needy families and reduce dependence on government assistance. Flexibility for states to use TANF dollars is at the heart of the bipartisan law that created the the block grant in 1996. In fact, the primary goal of the legislation was to increase the flexibility of states, which is exactly why Congress explicitly prohibited federal bureaucrats from telling states how and where to spend these funds. The Biden administration is attempting to sidestep Congress with the proposed rule, which is a clear violation of the law, while furthering their agenda to mischaracterize and spread false information of the goals and purpose of pregnancy resource centers. No one says TANF is perfect, but the role of improving the program lies with Congress. Not only is the Biden administration ignoring the law, but in the process, they are also penalizing vulnerable women trying to protect their own health and the health of their children. Democrats claim to support a woman's right to choose their own health care. But at this moment, the Biden administration is preparing to make it harder for moms to choose life for their unborn child as well as how they will take care of themselves and their babies. If this rule takes effect, pregnant women in America will have fewer fewer alternatives to abortion and less access to vital services and support. Congress must send a clear message that we will not tolerate federal bureaucrats ignoring the letter of the law, and we will stand up and support women. Women should not be denied access to these critical centers for the sake of a political agenda. I hope that each one of my colleagues will support this legislation to stop the Biden administration's attack on pregnant and parenting mothers and their families. And thank you, Mr. Chairman and members.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Obviously, the weather's made travel difficult. I'm recognizing my uh, friend from Pennsylvania, Ms. Scanlon, for any, uh, I think, to read into the record a statement by Representative Kew, who obviously had travel difficulties in getting here today as well.
6: Yes, not everyone's as hearty as the members of the Rules Committee, but uh, <laughs> travel has certainly been difficult for people. Um, my colleague, Representative Chu, couldn't be here, so I, she has asked me to present her remarks on 6918. Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member McGovern, I'm dismayed that today the Rules Committee meets not to consider serious legislation that will improve the lives of Americans, but to consider a bill merely intended to score political points with attendees at this week's anti-abortion rally here in Washington. This partisan Republican bill, H.R. 6918, would divert funds from needy children and families to anti-abortion centers. These so-called crisis pregnancy centers masquerade as health care facilities, usually providing misleading or inaccurate medical information in order to prevent women from seeking abortions. Specifically, the bill would block the Biden administration from monitoring state spending of temporary assistance for needy families, or TANF dollars, for so-called crisis pregnancy centers. In effect, it would permanently exempt from regulation and oversight state expenditure of federal TANF dollars on these centers. Everyone deserves access to accurate information when making health care decisions. Anti-abortion centers are not legitimate health care providers. Rather, they are organizations attempting to coerce pregnant people seeking abortions into carrying pregnancies to term, using manipulation and misinformation. They often disguise themselves as genuine health centers, even going so far as to dress their staff in scrubs or white coats to mimic medical professionals. Because these anti-abortion centers are not actual medical facilities, they are not covered by the privacy and security rules of HIPAA, and therefore their staff can say whatever they want without consequence. So these centers pose as medical facilities, spread misinformation about abortion, and then face little, if any, consequences for doing so. This has profound impact for the patients that find their way to these centers, believing falsely that their staff are real medical professionals. In Iowa, an OBGYN has seen patients who visited these centers and were told that using contraceptives was the same as having an abortion, that using birth control could give them cancer, and would damage their overall health. In Massachusetts, one of these centers failed to correctly diagnose an ectopic pregnancy because the staff member conducting her ultrasound wasn't qualified to be conducting that test. The woman later required emergency surgery. And in my home state, this is from uh, Rep Chu of California, our attorney general has sued one operator of these centers for their false claims of offering so-called abortion reversal, which is a procedure that not only does not exist, but attempts to implement it can cause life-threatening hemorrhaging in women. A recent study of 607 anti-abortion centers across nine states, covering almost two-thirds of these anti-abortion centers, found that they, quote, promoted patently false and or biased medical claims about pregnancy, abortion, contraceptive, and reproductive health care providers, unquote. Fewer than half reported having a licensed medical professional on staff. During our markup last week, Democrats offered a series of amendments to allow funding to these centers, if they could be demonstrated, to provide medically accurate information, not harm women's health or economic futures, and did not mislead women as to their purpose or use coercion to get them to visit them. Committee Republicans rejected all of those amendments, making clear that their purpose is coercive (coughs) propaganda, not support for pregnant women we want to support parents, Democrats on the Ways and Means Committee would welcome the support for things like the enhanced and increased child tax credit, paid family and medical leave, and making child care affordable for working families. Instead, we are debating a bill that has no hope of becoming law, that is not a serious a- attempt to help families, and that is merely an attempt to appease a far-right fringe group in town for its annual conference. In fact, this bill is to serious pro-family legislation. What so-called crisis pregnancy centers are to actual, responsible medical care. A sham masquerading as something helpful. The best we can do to support pregnant women and families today is to reject this legislation. With that, I yield the balance of Ms. Chu's time.
0: I thank the gentlelady for reading our colleague's statement into the record. Uh, I have no questions for our witnesses. I'll go next to my friend, Dr. Burgess.
4: No questions, Chairman. I want to thank our, both our witnesses, both in abstention and in front of us. I have had the opportunity to visit pregnancy centers in my district. I found them to be staffed by very compassionate people. They provide access to information about things like formula, diapers, and what other resources are available in the community. So I think they are important. And uh, a little bit mystified as to why the administration has singled them out for. For criticism, but thank you uh, <clears throat> to our colleague Ms. Fishbuck, for for bringing this, and uh, look forward to voting for it on the floor tomorrow.
0: Thank you, gentlemen from Massachusetts, for any questions he may
1: have. Yeah, I, and um, let me let me say miss Ms. Chu referenced in her um, in her testimony a Massachusetts um, uh, pregnancy center that happens to be in my district, uh, not too far from my district office in, in Worcester, and. Um, It is, uh, and the reason why there's concern is because um, somebody almost died uh, because the people, they were not medically qualified uh, to understand um, all that uh, that you need to understand for a woman to be able to have a a, a safe pregnancy. And a complaint was filed against that uh, uh, center, um, basically saying they engage in deceptive advertising, aiming to persuade women forgo abortions rather than providing them with the range of medically appropriate options. And the plaintiff, who is a Worcester resident, one of my constituents, um, alleges that the so-called nurse who performed the ultrasound scan at the center did not understand sufficient medical measures to ensure the pregnancy was vi- viable. An ectopic pregnancy, uh, is what she was dealing with, occurs when a fertilized egg imp- implants and grows outside of the uterus, most often in the fallopian tube. Such pregnancies are usually non-viable and they can be life-threatening. And um, the suit alleges that the women's fallopian tube ruptured about a month after the ultrasound scan, causing massive internal bleeding and necessitating emergency <laughs> surgery. Um, and the, like the not saying that the, that the uh, nurse or whoever it was intentionally misled her. Instead, they're saying that uh, that the staffer missed the ectopic pregnancy because she wasn't qualified to do this. So if we're talking about protecting viable pregnancies and we're talking about protecting the mother, we need to make sure that they're going to places that are properly equipped and staffed uh, to do what is best for the mother. In this case, that did not happen. That did not happen. Uh, and the idea that you're diverting TANF monies to help at-risk families and children to support a political agenda that, quite frankly, is terribly unpopular in this country, it's one of the reasons why you're all losing elections, um, I find to be really disturbing. So I, uh, I, I will oppose this bill, uh, but, um, I mean, I, you know, this obsession... Uh, with um, w- with trying to roll back women's rights when it comes to access to abortion or proper health care guidance um, is something I just don't quite understand. But in any event, uh, I think the only thing is that this will go nowhere, even if it passes the House. But that case that Mr. Chu referred to happened to be in my district.
0: Uh, I yield back. Thank you. The gentlelady from Pennsylvania is recognized for any questions she may have.
6: Um, I... I- don't really have any questions. I think we should all be able to agree on the importance of supporting maternal and infant care, particularly given the shocking rate of maternal mortality in this country, um, and particularly for women of color. But that's not what this bill does. This bill tries to block a federal regulation of these pregnancy centers, despite the growing body of evidence that many of these centers are deceiving people about whether or not they're actually providing health care. And they're misusing, diverting, and um, actually defrauding um, federal taxpayers of dollars that are sent to these places in multiple states, including Pennsylvania and Minnesota, um, that are not (coughs) supporting the goals of TANF. So this is almost an oversight function that the federal government has been responding to these reports, um, which are growing in number. About the misuse of federal dollars in these pregnancy crisis centers, and trying to make sure that those dollars are only spent for the purposes. If we were just talking about diapers and formula, we wouldn't. the The um, Department of Human Services would not have issued this regulation. What we're talking about is misuse of federal dollars um, with deceptive um, quote medical unquote practices and um, actually diversion of dollars. In Pennsylvania, there's been a major contract that's been terminated because it turned out that they were taking dollars uh, that had flowed from the federal government through Pennsylvania um, and diverting them to other places, and not actually using them to provide services to um, mothers and children but for overhead in other states. So I think it's an appropriate function for the federal government. I think it's a mistake to try to block. the administration from trying to make sure that these dollars are spent in the way that Congress intended. And I yield back.
0: gentleman from Colorado is recognized for any questions he may have. And the gentlelady from New Mexico is recognized for any questions she may have.
9: Thank you. Uh, and thank you, uh, Representative uh, Scanlon, for reading the statement, uh, and especially pointing out that the reason we're having these bills when we should be working on funding our government is because there's a rally going up. So this is such a political stunt and you know, more political theater attacking abortion. Uh, and And to the state to the statement that these uh, crisis pregnancy centers are just providing information, um, Mr. Chairman, uh, I would ask unanimous consent to enter into the record an issue brief about crisis pregnancy centers from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists.
0: Without objection.
9: So this issue's brief actually describes how these centers are famous and actually use uh, inaccurate information and end up doing things like what we heard about uh, that puts women's lives at risk. One of the misleading practices that these centers do is They assert false risks of abortion. They say there are links between abortion and breast cancer and fertility, mental illness, and preterm birth. Uh, They uh, have a long list of uh, the misinformation that they provide, including saying there are legal limits to abortion when there are not. Uh, They cause delays in legitimate health care by delaying when women can actually get access to True healthcare the doctors that I talked about earlier, that women should be able to consult without interference by politicians, um, that when you delay that, you can delay uh, assessing difficulties of pregnancy, whether you choose to keep a pregnancy, such as if you're diabetic or other things, or choosing to terminate the pregnancy so that you don't go beyond limits, as states are now imposing Six week limits, four week limits, eight week limits—whatever limits they're doing—and by delaying that, you are actually delaying a woman's choice. And so, I think that you know it is wise for us to listen to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. They are the experts in this realm. And so, uh, I you know would enter that into the record. I also am very curious as I read through the record of how this moved through. Uh, committee that we actually had Representative Delbeni submitting uh, an amendment that said pregnancy centers cannot provide medically inaccurate information. Just holding them to that standard, that's not such a high standard. Like, be accurate? And Republicans voted that amendment down. So once again, we keep seeing Republicans voting down amendments to try to make these bills actually scientific-based. And Republicans keep saying no. And I think this should tell the American public. Republicans do not want our women to have accurate medical information about their health care choices, period. We need to hold them accountable. And we say, that's not acceptable. We will make our decisions. And we will make those decisions. And we'll make sure they are heard at the ballot boxes, which is what we have seen over and over again every time this issue of reproductive freedom, of health care and women being able to have the freedom to make their own health care decisions in conversation with their own faith, whatever that faith may be, that that women are speaking loudly. And I hope they keep speaking loudly so that politicians like those who have brought this bill will stay out of their doctor's office. And
7: with that, I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: The general ladies recognized to
7: response. Mr. Chair, thank you. Um, It comes from the fact that the Biden administration chose to target these life-affirming centers. They, 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 the pregnancy care centers, were receiving TANF funds, so it's not diverting. It's not um, adding them. This is already this is already this TANF dollars going to those pregnancy care centers is, is existing, and the Biden administration chose to go after them. What they are doing is limiting state flexibility because the states have the flexibility right now to choose or to not to send it where they want. That is the purpose of the TANF, the way that the TANF uh, bill was written, the program was put together. Many of the crisis pregnancy centers adhere to national standards. They are part of a national network. They adhere to standards and ethics. Um, and I, I have been to a pregnancy care center, just like uh, Dr. Burgess has been. and. What you see is you see caring, compassionate people who are there to care for the mother and the child during pregnancy and after pregnancy, and many, many, many. We heard, we had stories in um, during the ways and means uh, markup on this bill that talked about uh, you know many years of being supported by these pregnancy care centers and children that grew up. And I, doc- I believe it was Dr. Westrups who his, uh, who his wife. Uh, worked at a crisis pregnancy center or volunteered at a crisis pregnancy center this is not um, what the other side wants to make it out to be these are good places helpful places they care for the mother and the child and that's why you t- you hear about you know you hear about the the fundraising that they do to add to the tanF dollars so this is this is actually a value for us because they do a lot of private fundraising they do a lot of fundraising for baby items so that uh, so that they can send uh, send home with the mother and the baby cribs, diapers, whatever it may be, and and so it, it's not just it's not these pregnancy care centers are not what the other side is trying to make them out to be. Thank you, Mr. Chair.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for appearing before us today, gentlelady's excuse, and we hope she returns to the dais. Thank you. <laughs> I'd like to welcome our third panel, uh, Representative Nathaniel Morin and Ranking Member Gerald Nadler from the Committee on the Judiciary Thank you very much. Representative Moran, you're recognized for your opening statement.
10: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm here on HRES 957 denouncing the Biden administration's open border policies. I want to thank you for allowing me the opportunity to be in front of the committee. President Biden's own actions tell us that he has never been a fan of a secure U.S. border. During the 2020 election, then-candidate Biden's campaign promises included rolling back President Trump's successful border security policies, restarting catch and release, and offering amnesty to illegal aliens in the United States. Unfortunately, he has made good on these promises. Within a few days of taking office, President Biden halted border wall construction, terminated the Remand in Mexico program, and reversed policies that successfully cut down on frivolous asylum claims and systematically dismantled immigration enforcement. Right away, House Republicans started sounding the alarm that reversing the Trump administration policies would lead to a flood of illegal aliens on the southwest border. And we weren't the only ones sounding the alarm. In fact, the U.S. Border Patrol had warned the Biden transition team that reversing these policies would be seen as a sign that our border was open. The Biden administration did it anyway, and today we know House Republicans and the Border Patrol were right. The text of my proposed House resolution is simple and straightforward. It denounces the Biden administration's open border policies, it condemns the national security and public crisis that the president has (coughs) caused, and it urges President Biden to end these open border policies. If you're wondering why we need to pass this resolution, it's simple, because some still denies that a crisis is occurring and some deny that the president and his administration bear any responsibility for it. But the border numbers do not lie. In fact, they tell us a clear story about the depth of this crisis and approximate cause rooted in Biden's administration policies. Consider that the total number of illegal aliens encountered along the southern border under President Biden exceeds 7 million. At the same time, the Biden administration has released at least 3.3 million of those illegal aliens into the interior of the United States. This number is larger than the entire population of states like Nevada, Arkansas, and Kansas. Additionally, more than 1.7 million gotaways and an untold number of unknown illegal alien gotaways have successfully evaded capture by U.S. Border Patrol along the, the southwest border. 312 illegal aliens on the terrorist screening data set were encountered along the southwest border since Biden took office. By contrast, consider that in four years under the Trump administration, a total of only 11 illegal aliens on the TSDS were encountered by Border Patrol. More than 785,000 migrant encounters have been reported just since the beginning of this fiscal year, October 1. That's the highest first quarter total ever recorded. In fiscal year 23, 27,000 pounds of fentanyl were seized at the southern border. This is almost double fiscal year 22, and it's six times larger than fiscal year 20. March 2023 report by the Council on Foreign Relations found that 152,000 unaccompanied minors were found at the U.S.-Mexico border In fiscal year 2022, presently, the Biden administration has lost contact with as many as 85,000 of these UACs. Until 2012, most of those encountered by the Border Patrol, in fact, about 85%, were citizens of Mexico. But the landscape has changed. In fiscal year 22, migrants from Mexico crossing illegally made up just 33%. Now individuals are coming from more than 150 different countries, and many of these countries have direct ties to terrorism. The crisis is real and it's getting worse because the world knows President Biden will do nothing to defend the physical borders of our nation. So what's the result? President Biden's open border policies have resulted in a significant threat to our national security and have caused a public safety crisis in the interior of the United States. Overcrowded classrooms, childhood children trafficked to work in industries unsuited for children, millions in unpaid medical bills in hospitals across the U.S., Overwhelm first responders in border communities, border patrol agents who feel like travel agents, homeless veterans who get kicked out of shelters in favor of illegal aliens, and even the deaths of innocent victims, uh, Americans. And these effects are being felt in rural and metropolitan communities in both red and blue states. As of the beginning of December, the city of D- Denver had spent over $33 million to house, feed, and educate around 30,000 illegal aliens. Chicago residents are up in arms about the money spent on illegal alien shelters in their communities when the taxpaying residents themselves have been asking for and denied additional services for years. The New York City mayor continues to lament the illegal aliens being busted into that city uh, will destroy, quote, destroy the city. In 2022, 73,000 people died of fentanyl overdose in the U.S. This is more than double the deaths in 2019 and the highest in American history. Assaults on border patrol agents have doubled in the last year. Nevertheless, the Biden administration is doubling down on its open border policies. What will it take for this administration to wake up and take action? House Resolution 957 denounces Biden administration's open border policies, condemns the national security and public safety crisis that the administration has caused and urges the president to end his open borders agenda. It's simple and to the point and the American people deserve its passage. I yield back.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Ranking Member Natalie, you're recognized for your opening statement. Chairman Cole,
11: Ranking Member McGovern, thank you for the opportunity to testify today on this resolution. This country is facing real problems. There is an erosion of trust in our government and institutions. The right to bodily autonomy is under attack across the nation. There was a school shooting just four days into the new year leading to the tragic death of an 11-year-old and the injury of seven others. Our immigration system cannot function because Congress has failed to reform it for over 30 years, and we are just days away from large parts of our government shutting down. But instead of working to respond to these problems, House Republicans are fighting among themselves. Their inability to govern led to another failed rule vote last week and has brought us to the brink of a government shutdown. Their historic dysfunction has prompted multiple members of their conference to complain that they have nothing to campaign on. But instead of laying out a legislative agenda to address the needs of the American people, we are here in the Rules Committee to discuss a pointless border resolution. This resolution will do nothing to solve the situation at the border. It proposes no solutions of any kind. In fact, this resolution is nothing more than a highlight reel of the Republican talking points in immigration that we have heard over and over from Republicans since President Biden was sworn into office. So let me say once again, the border is not open. The Biden administration is removing people at a very significant pace in ways that I have concerns about with respect to due process. Since the end of Title 42 last May, the Biden administration has removed or returned over 470,000 individuals and members of family units. This total, is nearly equivalent to the number of people removed in all of fiscal year 2019 under the Trump administration. But because President Biden isn't saying that he wants to shoot migrants trying to cross the border like Governors Abbott and and DeSantis have, Republicans don't think he's doing enough. Today, there are approximately 38,000 people in immigration detention, which is 4,000 more than what the Department of Homeland Security is even funded for levels of detention similar to those during fiscal year 2018, during the Trump administration. And despite my colleagues' claims, fentanyl is largely not coming into this country between ports of entry. More than 90% of fentanyl interdicted is stopped at ports of entry, where cartels attempted to smuggle through, primarily in vehicles driven by American citizens at ports of entry. That is why DHS was able to stop over 43,000 pounds of fentanyl from hitting our streets and seized more than 3,600 pill presses. So I'm not sure how anyone can say the border is open or that this administration is not enforcing our laws. On top of this, at every turn, Republicans have voted against giving DHS the resources it needs to do its job. In 2021, all but six current House Republicans voted against the bipartisan infrastructure deal, which provided additional funding to modernize ports of entry and allow for non-intrusive inspections to combat the smuggling of people and drugs. Likewise, all but two current House Republicans voted against providing robust funding for Customs and Border Protection and Border Security operations in fiscal year 2023 appropriations omnibus legislation. That bill provided more than $17 billion to CBP, including $60 million to hire an additional 125 CBP officers and $70 million for non-intrusive inspection technology to detect narcotics and firearms at ports of entry. And When it comes to the President's supplemental request, which would provide $14 billion for border security, we have not had a single hearing, let alone a vote on the request. The President has requested vital funds for 375 immigration judges and 1,600 asylum officers to speed up processing of asylum claims, as well as funds for additional personnel at ports of entry and technology to stop drugs from coming into the country. If we had adequate numbers of asylum officers and immigration judges, we could decide these cases in weeks, not years. You wouldn't have the problem of catch and release that Republicans are so fond of talking about, but the Republicans refuse to vote the funds to solve that problem. Instead, Republicans, House Republicans insist they will only consider H.R. 2, their draconian enforcement-only bill that would destroy the asylum system, gut protections for unaccompanied kids, and end all parole programs, policies that stand no chance of passage in the Senate, which shows that they're not interested in real solutions. Real solutions require compromise, and MAGA Republicans aren't interested in compromise. We need to work together to address our broken immigration system. Enforcement alone cannot fix it. We know this because that approach has largely failed for three decades. We need to update our immigration system so that it meets the needs of our country. We need a balanced, bipartisan approach that expands lawful pathways. This will help relieve pressure on the border, and allow people to come to this country in an orderly and efficient way. This resolution, however, is nothing but empty rhetoric designed to score cheap political points that brings us no closer to meaningful reform. I urge my colleagues to reject this resolution, and I'd be happy to answer your questions. I yield back.
0: Thank uh, both our witnesses. I'd ask you both, uh, and uh, I'll start with you, Representative Danter. Are there more people or fewer people coming into the country illegally in the last three years than the three years before?
11: Well, as I said, there are probably more people now. Now, No, no, there are certainly more people, not probably more people. It's certainly true that we're seeing unprecedented migration at the border. That's due to a record number of displaced people around the world. World travel being shut down because of the pandemic and the Trump administration's gutting of legal immigration including the refugee program. And we should work together in bipartisan solutions instead of passing meaningless resolutions.
0: I asked you the same question, Mr. Moran. Are there more people or fewer people coming across our border illegally?
10: Chairman Cole, there's significantly more people coming across our border illegally in the last three years than there were under the prior administration by significant multiples.
0: OK, if we, uh, and again, I'll ask you both. If we, uh, the number of people claiming asylum, how many actually, when their cases are adjudicated, what's the percentage, roughly, of people that we find legitimately have a uh, asylum
11: claim? I don't know.
0: Well, I can tell you. It's uh, roughly, almost 90% of those claims are not
11: legitimate well, asylum that makes-
0: claims that once they're adjudicated.
11: Mr. Chairman, that makes my point, that we should have enough funding for enough asylum judges and uh, asylum officers so we can make those determinations in weeks, not in years. Well, if the-,
0: the And if, that's if, what the Biden did, administration- Do you decides. think the, the president's executive orders that he issued the very first day he was elected, pre- or sworn in as president, uh, you know, made our borders more secure or less secure?
11: I think the fact of the matter is that Since the end of Title 42, the Biden administration has approved or returned to Mexico over 470,000 people, including over 78,000 individual members of family units, including children. This total is equivalent, or almost equivalent, to the number of people removed in all of fiscal year 2019 under the Trump administration.
0: If more people are coming and you're only removing about the same number, aren't more people here illegally?
11: Yes, more people are here illegally, but, again,
0: then Wouldn't it have been a good f- idea if, to again, keep the Remain in Mexico policy, to no, continue to build I- the law?
11: Why? No, because the good idea is to have enough funding to be able to adjudicate these cases in weeks and remove the people who don't deserve asylum and, and have the people who do deserve asylum be able to be peacefully in, in this country and get work permits. That's what would solve the problem. And the administration has has, uh, has asked for that funding, and the Republicans have refused to vote that funding. That's what would solve the problem.
10: Chairman, did
0: you control the Congress until about a year ago? Were there no increases in funding when you had the House, the Senate, and the presidency? A lot of the numbers you're talking about have gotten worse when you were in complete control of both the legislative and the executive branch.
11: Have you ever heard of the filibuster or the filibuster? I the certainly have. Okay. That answers the question. Didn't you
0: control the United States Senate? Didn't you control the House? Votes?
11: By 60 votes? No.
0: I'm sorry. The problem's gotten worse on your watch, not better. Go to Mr. Moran with the same questions.
10: uh, Chairman Cole, I want to just address the fact that funding is not the issue here because funding is at some of the highest levels in decades. It's a matter of will and policy by the executive, um, by the executive branch in this in this country. And as it relates to needing more judges to adjudicate matters, Chairman, you pointed out the correct issue, and that is we're seeing high levels of asylum claims that are granted. And lots of folks that even before their case is adjudicated, released, some of whom, most of whom, don't come back for their adjudication. They just stay within the United States. But what we saw when there was the Remain in Mexico policy was those those incorrect claims of asylum went away because many people just didn't want to get in the United States and be released freely. They knew they were going to have to stay in Mexico or some other country while their claim was adjudicated. They weren't willing to do that because, frankly, they knew their case was not worth being adjudicated. So by expanding that asylum definition and by letting people go within the interior of the United States, we have seen this rise in cases uh, that is uh, overwhelming our uh, immigration uh, system at this point. When you go back, though, to these numbers where uh, Ranking Member Nadler mentioned about the number of folks that have been uh, sent out of the country now as opposed to earlier. Chairman, you hit the, the nail on the head. I had a I had a flood in my house, uh, uh, a water flood in my house during my primary a couple years ago. And the first thing I did was go to the water main and turn it off because if I tried to clean up the mess in my house while that water was continuing to flood my house, there's gonna be no way for me to catch up. And so the first thing to do is correct the problem, fix the issue, and then clean up what needs to be cleaned up on the interior. We're failing to do that by failing to shut off the border itself.
0: I thank uh, both gentlemen for their answers. Now, turn to my good friend, the uh, ranking member, for any questions he may have.
10: Well, thank you. Um,
1: thank you both for being here. Um, let me just so, so I understand this um, in the bill we're talking about right now, there's there's not a not any additional funding for border security or for um, additional um, staff to adjudicate asylum claims. Not in April. Um and um, if I understand, this basically is simply a, a bill to just condemn the Biden administration. I mean, there's no, there's no, no there there other than this is like a, a statement of condemnation. Is that it? That's correct. Is that what this bill does?
10: Ranking member, what this bill does and the reason why I, I answered this question in my yeah. comments opening statement was. Why do we need this? We need this for two reasons. One, because uh, folks on on the Democratic side of the aisle refuse to acknowledge that there's a crisis at the border, number one. And number two, they refuse to acknowledge that it's largely a result of Biden's policies. And if that acknowledgement uh, were to happen, this resolution uh, likely would not be needed.
1: I I think what people are are looking for, and I think what many of our our constituents are looking for, are are solutions, right? How do we deal with this? There's a lot of reasons why people are coming. To the border uh, right now, um, you know the the world is in unprecedented turmoil. People are coming from all over the world um, for a variety of reasons, um, and you know that's one subject that maybe that we we need to to improve some of our foreign policy initiatives. But but it but you know but it seems to me that there is great consensus that you know we need to beef, beef up our border security. That doesn't solve everything. But that's one thing we can do. Um, it seems to me that what Mr. Nell is suggesting about additional funds for, you know, to help uh, process sound claims seems like a reasonable thing to do. And I think that Democrats and Republicans could agree on that. I mean, there's an old saying that you don't have to agree on everything to agree on something. And so there's something we agree on, we got to get done, and we ought got to move forward. Um, but here's what I worry about, Mr. Moran. I, I worry about, and I, and I say this, um, not with any disrespect, but I really think that some of my Republican friends are not interested in solving the problem. They're interested in a political issue. And I say that, and maybe you were on this call, uh, where reports about House Speaker Mike Johnson privately told House Republicans that he will not accept whatever border security deal comes out of the current talks between the Senate and the White House. Um, a GOP lawmaker familiar with the call said, we don't even know what that deal is. Um, and. Were you on that call with the speaker when he said that? I was on that call, and and and, and I'm just trying to understand. I get it. You guys are committed to this HR two, which a lot of people I was find offensive and and quite frankly uh, against our, our our values. But nonetheless, I think everybody agrees we ought to do more at the border to stop people from coming in. Uh, we ought to do more to to get more to, to get these asylum claims moved forward quicker, and if you don't qualify, then you cannot stay here. Like, I I, used, I, I, I mean, Mr. had talked about the filibuster from the Senate. There are some pretty right-wing Republicans um, in the Senate on the Republican side, who I don't think are pushovers. But if there is a bipartisan deal in the Senate that emerges on this that can get around a filibuster isn't it worth at least looking at it and considering it to see whether or not there's any merit in it? It may not be everything you want, and it may contain things that I find very, very objectionable. Uh, but before I would rule it out of order as unacceptable, I mean, I'd like to I'd like to see it. And so there's, there's this growing feeling um, by many people on my side that you guys you guys are interested in the political issue and not in solving the issue. So I'm, I'm trying to understand on this conversation that the speaker had that you were on, why would he say that if we don't have a deal yet?
10: Well, I think you're misinterpreting what he's saying and certainly out of context because what speaker johnson has said over and over again is that he wants to work with the senate democrats and we realize we have to work with the senate democrats to get something done but it just won't be that the house republicans are going to take quote whatever we're not going to take illusory promises well maybe you can correct the record. really are meaningless maybe
1: cuz according to this article according to this gop lawmaker what he said in addition to what i just uh, recalled is that he uh, they would back you would back nothing le- anything less than republicans uh, secure and uh, the Border Act HR two that it's that or nothing, I mean, my is that an accurate? Um,
10: well, I think you're I think you're totally missing the point. I'm where just reading
1: from I'm everybody. reading I'm reading from an article that appear there's multiple press reports that this is what what he said. So it, the deal is I mean I just want to understand because I mean we, you know we we're, we're kind of spinning our wheels here trying to find common ground trying to figure out ways to to get to something that you know could get through the Senate. Um, and then we can maybe consider here. But why are we wasting our time if it's, it's all or nothing? And and according to multiple news articles and GOP sources, he made it clear it's all or nothing.
10: Am I? Were they am I well, I yeah, well, I'm, I'm just, after, I mean, yeah, you know, is, rank. is that, was that, am I accurate R- on? Ranking Member, I, I don't think you're accurate in the way you're portraying this. And quite frankly, the first way to, to get to a solution of a problem is to admit there is a problem. And that's the purpose of this yeah. resolution here If if I may, there has been no admission that I have heard, even from the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, or yourself, or any member of the Democratic side of the aisle, that has admitted that there is a a border crisis. Mr. Mr. Mr.
1: He just said
10: it. I don't. Maybe I'm maybe we're
1: speaking different languages, Mr. uh, Nadler.
10: Of course,
11: I. We all, I think, admit there is a major problem. We have said, I've said repeatedly today. Maybe the gentleman can't hear what I'm saying is that there are solutions. And the solutions involve adequate funding for asylum judges and and for uh, um, uh, Border Patrol and so forth and so on, which we've talked about. But no one denies there's a major problem. No, I mean, I'm saying, I mean, I, and that's
1: why I'm always, and you know, I'm, I'm a little stunned by your remarks, because many of us are, have put out statements about uh, the, the situation at the border. The administration has talked about the uh, the challenges at the border, and uh, I think, and we're trying to figure out what can we do, um, and I think what we're running up against. Uh, well, uh, the good news is the Senate, which I'm I'm not particularly fond of, seems to be, actually working in a bipartisan way to try to come up with something. I don't know what at the end of the day whether there's something they come up is, with is something that I can support or you can support whatever, but it's uh, it seems to me we ought to be open to to looking at if they can come up with a bipartisan um, proposal that may not do everything you want, but actually moves us in a different direction, you know, and, and provides more security at the border. And I and so I, that's why I am deeply, deeply, deeply frustrated um, by the, the Speaker's remarks. And I get it. Um, I understand where... Some of uh, my friends on the other side side the aisle are coming from. I, you know, I mean, they're they're. This is an issue that's ripe for for them to demagogue, and they do it on a regular basis. But at the end of the day, if we're really serious about this, um, you, you know, you don't have to agree on everything to agree on something. It's something you agree on, you get done, and then you move on. And you keep on doing. It. And I don't know what the next election is going to be. Uh, the results are going to be. Um, you know, I. I don't know who controls the House or who controls the Senate, you know, or how the uh, the race for the presidency will go. Uh, but the bottom line is, you can't be waiting around for the next election all the time to be able to do something. And um, you know, and I think that there are Democrats, and I hear it all the time, you know, that want to do some stuff that I think some Republicans agree on. Can we just get that done um, and then continue to fight about the stuff that where we disagree on? Anyway, that's my. I mean, I
10: you know. We found our first point of agreement. By the way, I'm not fond of the Senate either. Right. So yeah. I think we've, we agree on I think we've found a we point agree of on agreement. on something.
1: Maybe we can pass a bill to you know to say something about that. But uh, but in any time anyway, it it's just frustrating because we, we have these arguments all the time, and and it, it's like there's, and I know that there are things that we can't agree on, but yet. It's either all or nothing. And I. that's why the Speaker's remarks, I think, are particularly discouraging.
0: Well, yeah, I yield to the gentleman. Uh, just for a point of clarification, my friend, I was on that call as well. And that is, to Mr. Moran's point, not an accurate report of what the Speaker said. He was given several hypotheticals that people say, well, the deal hasn't. And how anybody can say that, I don't know, not quite frankly, is. because nobody knows. Nobody's seen any text yet. And so the remark was, well, if it's this and this and this, well, no, I wouldn't agree to that. So it wasn't a I wouldn't agree to anything, or I wouldn't look at the agreement. But some of the reports coming out, which I think are pretty irresponsible, and they're coming from both sides, quite frankly, of the political spectrum as to what I, you know, I'm, I serve with James Langford, obviously, the senator from my state. I have a high degree of confidence. in even if he came back and told me he'd agreed on something, Believe me, there are things I'm hearing that I know James Langford would never agree on. So I just I'm actually agreeing with my friend. Let's wait and see what the text is, and then I think you're exactly right. We ought to evaluate it on that basis if we can do something. No- but we aren't an automatic rubber stamp for the United States well, Senate. We were never designed to be. So no, may, not- may may be good enough. May not be good enough. Uh, may require something different, but it's a legislative process, and we're pretty early in it uh, to decide we all know. And of course, we all know there's lots of other elements in this agreement. It's not just a border security agreement. A lot of people on my side would feel a lot more comfortable probably if it were. I actually support the other elements that would be in that package that we know more about. Some of my colleagues don't. Fair enough. Uh, but again, I just wanted to assure my friend no. The speaker did not say it's this or nothing. Uh, he was presented with hypotheticals about what were other people were reading because of speculation. So, well, basically, certainly I wouldn't accept that or that or that. So let's uh, wait and see if they get to a deal, and then I'll join my friend. We'll look at it. Well, I, I, we might even find ourselves voting on the same yeah. side. No, I, I, I appreciate that. I'm, again, I'm just going by news reports. Now, I, I think that, that's fair, that were, I listen to the conversation. So. That
1: were related uh, to reporters by a GOP
0: uh, member who was uh, wearing well, the coat. So, so, and, you, and again, you, I know my friend's never been in a private conversation. It was misreported someplace that he had to respond to. I think all of us have had that experience uh, on both sides of the aisle. And we'll,
1: uh, we'll, we'll see what ha- we'll, we'll see what happens. But again, I mean, uh, I, I think at this at this stage again, this is not a new issue, and it's and and certainly people. This is not a new a new issue that people have been trying to work on. Um, but if we can remain open to what might come out of the Senate, and again, it may be something we can support, maybe something we can't support. But as long as people have an open mind, uh, I think that would be probably the most useful thing we could do. So I agree that, uh, very much with my I
0: friend. You're back. Thank you very much. And I'll go to my good friend uh, Dr. Burgess, who actually represents a border state. Thank you,
4: and uh, yeah, thank you for bringing this bringing this to the uh, to the Rules Committee. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't serving here in 1986. A bill was passed, it was called the Simpson-Mazzoli Act. Simpson-Mazzoli, pretty simple principle. We've got four or five million people in the country who are undocumented. We're going to give them all amnesty. And then, by golly, we will be serious about securing the border after that. And here's the problem. The amnesty occurred. The security never did. And that's why your constituents and my constituents are so skeptical of everything that comes out of this administration. They've seen him do nothing but wave the welcome flag and then wring his hands when he says, oh, we've got a real problem here. This is a problem not requiring immigration reform. This is a problem requiring serious border security, and the administration seems unwilling or unable to provide that. They are suffering politically mightily because they are not willing to provide that, and it's time for them to get serious. Instead of constantly being at odds with governors—and they're not just Republican governors, by the way, but governors who are having to deal with this on a frontline basis because they are border states—instead of always being at odds to those governors, Why not be helpful? And look, Mr. Nadler, a lot of sympathy for your mayor, um, but i got to tell you, in the Budget Committee a year and a half ago, right before Title 42 expired, I asked the Secretary of Health and Human Services, what are you doing to provide information to the people who are downstream who are going to be seeing the vastly increased numbers of people coming across the border without the benefit of citizenship, what are you doing to prepare them? What are you doing to prepare their schools, their hospitals, their communities for what is coming their way? And what did he tell me? He gave me a non-answer and said, well, there are intergovernmental ways that this will be managed. Well, that's BS, to be polite. There was no intergovernmental program. There was no warning. There were no, there was no willingness to do anything to alert those communities to what's coming, not to stop the problem from coming, but just to say, hey, watch out, because we're not protecting the border, and this is what's coming your way. And as a result, you've got school districts. I know in our state, we've got school districts that are literally overwhelmed with people, new arrivals that they weren't prepared for. No one warned them. There was no... uh, forewarning to adjust their tax base so they would be able to deal with that. We know law enforcement is overwhelmed. We hear from sheriffs uh, when we go down and visit the border. The border sheriffs will tell you in very plain language what they are dealing with. And Mr. Moran, your analogy about when you're dealing with a flood, you got to stop the flow first before you can do anything else. And this administration refuses to t- stop the flow. So. My read of what your resolution does is say, look, we've got to stop the flow, Mr. President. If you won't, we will, and it has to happen. I was also here in 2010, ranking members left, said the Senate filibuster is what's prevented any serious immigration reform. You know, I was here in 2010, you had a 60-vote majority in the Senate. And although it wasn't strictly everything that we're talking about today, Mr. Durbin had his dreamer act that he wanted to get across the floor of the Senate. In a lame duck session in 2010, you have 60 votes in the Senate, but four Democrats voted against it. In fact, three Republicans voted with Mr. Durbin. Four Democrats voted against it. So it's not not Republicans who are preventing this from happening. When you had 60 votes in the Senate, you couldn't do it either, because your senators wouldn't vote for it. That's what makes us all so tiresome. The problem is not immigration reform. The problem is security. Please, secure the border, and then we can talk about whatever else we need to talk about. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for letting me vent on that, and I'll yield back.
0: (laughs) A gentlelady from Pennsylvania is recognized for any questions she may have.
6: What's great about this committee is there's equal opportunity venting. this resolution starts with a nakedly political title um, and a lie that the administration has embraced open borders, which it has not, and it continues with a number of faults and nakedly political assertions about the causes of migration at the border and the government's response to border security. It fails to recognize the strides that have been made in reducing the flow of migrants at the border, I think by over two thirds in recent months, and the um, increasing seizures of fentanyl at the border. Um, what it does make clear is that this is political; that it is not a legitimate attempt to find solutions to what is happening at the border. Um, if we were, if the House Republicans were looking for solutions, they would have embraced the supplemental funding that the President has requested. If House Republicans were looking for solutions, they would have embraced the bipartisan um, attempts in the Senate to address the border issues instead of declaring that they will be dead on arrival in the House. And um, again, it's just clear that this is a nakedly political exercise. House Republicans are too happy to talk about the crisis at the border, but unwilling to do anything to address it. And in fact, the speaker has been quoted as saying that nothing will happen on the border until Trump is back in the White House, or there's another Republican president. So this is a political exercise. I don't think you can expect any Democrat to vote for this resolution, given the fact that it completely misstates what's happening and uh, takes as its basic premise an open border policy, which is, in fact, not the policy of the Biden administration. So, I yield back.
0: Thank you. gentlemen gentleman from Pennsylvania is recognized
5: for any questions he may have for the panel. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate it. So, just to put these things in perspective, you know, last month was the highest number of border encounters ever, ever in our history. I mean, that's, that's the level where we are right now. With that said, Judge, do you have anything that you would like to add?
10: Uh, just to go back real quickly to what Ms. Scanlon just said, um, that the Biden administration has not embraced open border policies. Uh, I, I'm struck by the fact that in a memo by Speaker Johnson back in uh, Jan- on January 4th, he laid out 64 different instances and specifically by date and by action called out the administration for 64 different things he has done beginning on day one of the Uh, the administration and continuing through the first week of January 2024 that actually have led to uh, the border crisis that we're seeing now. Back in December, uh, Speaker Johnson sent a letter December 21st to President Biden, specifically laying out a number of broad policy agenda items that he should return to. Uh, I, I keep hearing more and more about this it's a matter of funding, it's a matter of funding, it's a matter of funding. If that were true, then you would think that you would have seen a, a huge decrease of funding January 20th, 2021, because that's when the increase in the surge of migration began. But what we know is true is it's not a matter of funding. Funding's, it's, as I said earlier, some of the highest levels, even inflation indexed, as we have seen in the past 40 years. But in fact, the flow of illegal immigration has increased, and not just from one country, but from several countries, and it's all a matter of will and policy of the Biden administration, that's the admission I really wish that the other side of the aisle would would take in this resolution, is to admit that not just there's a crisis, but it's a result of and emanating from Biden's policies, and that Biden can have the will, if he just has the will, to undertake new policies or return to some policies. Remain in Mexico being at the top of that list, it would fix a lot of the situation on the border, uh, something that we see day, day to day. I, I yield back.
5: Thank you, Judge Moran. I appreciate it. With that, I yield back.
8: Thank you very much. Gentlemen, the Colorado is recognized for the questions he may have. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, welcome, Ranking Member uh, Nadler. Of course, privileged to serve on your committee. And, and uh, Mr. Moran, uh, welcome to the committee. And I understand this is your first appearance before the Rules Committee. Is that right? It
10: is my first appearance.
8: So Hopefully not my last. Welcome, welcome, welcome.
10: Thank you for the warm welcome, by the Well,
8: <laughs> let's wait till after my questions, baby. Uh, you know, I appreciate both of your respective testimonies. Mr. Mann, I guess I want to drill down a little bit on this point that you've made very emphatically uh, throughout today's hearing about funding. And, you know, the ranking member posed this question to you about border security funding and you're you're adamant that this has nothing to do with funding, that funding is at its highest levels and uh, that this is not a funding issue. That's your testimony?
10: That is. And not to say that there's not areas to look at where we can increase funding if if necessary so funding is an issue no 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 uh funding is not the primary issue and that's that's what i've said funding is not the cause of what we've seen because funding's at this all-time high level but when you drill down specifically, certainly there are areas. I think when, when you look at just about every area so of the budget, let me ask you a question about the this. budget. Let me just finish my statement sure. for a second. Every area of the budget is going to be overly broad, I think, in some areas and underinclusive in some areas. So there is always a good faith attempt to look at every area of the budget to determine where can we increase, where should we decrease. But certainly, funding is not the issue that's being presented, and not the cause of the border crisis. Okay,
8: so you've been in Congress for about a year. What was the first bill you introduced in the Congress?
10: The first bill I introduced was the Border Security Investment Act.
8: The Border Security Investment Act. I pulled up this bill, and in your release on January 31st of 2023, you say, this is a quote, most importantly, this legislation will generate funding for badly needed border security investments. Here's my point. The president has submitted a supplemental budget proposal to increase border security investments and in funding he'd like for the Congress to work with him collaboratively on that. My sense is that most members of your conference agreed that funding is an important priority that we shared. It's just in the last six months that now suddenly, or I should say the last four months since the president submitted his emergency request, that it has nothing to do with funding, notwithstanding that, uh, I mean, you clearly decided this legislation. I'm I'm happy to take a look at it after this uh, hearing that Funding was important, that border security investments are important, uh, that that's something we ought to be working on together. So I, I'm just struck by the the comments by my colleagues from the other side of the aisle and some of the testimony we've heard today. that This has nothing to do with funding when uh, it's because the president has made the case that we need to have increased funding. Um, and it seems to me that it's a, a particularly convenient um, excuse, in my view, to, as the ranking member said, avoid doing anything about this challenge that I think we all agree we need to address. But I'm happy to give you an opportunity to respond.
10: Yeah, and and I, I appreciate the fact that you brought up the Border Security Investment Act. Happy to talk to you about that. But again, back to the correlation. If if funding was the primary issue for the cause of the border crisis, you would see a correlation between a decrease in funding and the increase of border, secu- of border uh, crossings, illegal border crossings. You're not seeing that. I do think that there is a need for, if you look at my bill, technology, border agents, and um, and wall, and this is these are three specific areas where we can increase funding. As I said, there's overly inclusive areas of the budget uh, and overly broad and under inclusive. I think this is an area that's under included in our budget where we need to increase that. And my Board of Security Investment Act specifically says we need to take that money and get that money through remittances, not on the backs of, of taxpayers but on remittances they are going back to the the top five countries of origin for illegal immigration so that U.S. taxpayers are not bearing any more financial burden because we're already seeing an uh, overly burdensome system on the American taxpayer to deal with the problems internally for these illegal crossings.
8: And I would just suggest, uh, sir, that— I mean, I know when I was starting in Congress uh, back in 2019, the first bill that I introduced as a member of Congress meant a lot to me, to my office. It was reflective of the priorities that I believed uh, this Congress ought to be pursuing. And so I I would just say again, I'm struck that the first bill that that came to mind for you and your team was a bill to invest in border technology, as the president wants to do. A bill to increase personnel, border agents, uh, funding within CBP, as President Biden wants to do. to me, that seems like a, a, a place in which we can potentially find some common ground. But in any event, I, I'll conclude just by, I suppose, reinforcing a point that the ranking member made with respect to this particular resolution. Because I think you and I will agree that and the, it's evidenced by the plain language of the resolution. This resolution doesn't actually do anything.
7: I mean, it's not, there's no
8: provision in here that changes any law right? They're correct? That's correct. Right, There's no provision in here that allocates more funding, obviously. Um, it's a non-binding statement of opinion uh, for those members that choose to vote for it. It will do nothing to address the challenges that we have on our southern border. And I would just hope that the Republican Conference could put to the side some of these efforts that we know are not going to bear any real fruit and engage with us collaboratively on trying to address the problem because there are many of us who'd like to do so but it's hard to do that when we're called back to Washington to vote on a two-page resolution condemning the president uh, and that is touted as the panacea to the crisis on the southern border i mean i just I don't think the American people would would concur in that assessment. I'm happy to give you a chance to respond if you'd like. Uh,
10: but. Uh, no, I appreciate the dialogue. I really do, and I, and I would appreciate you looking at my Border Security Investment Act. I think it's a substantive uh, provision as well. I was also pleased to uh, to introduce the Visa Overseas Penalty Act, which was part of HR2, and I served as one of the eight original co-sponsors to HR2, and I firmly believe we need to get back to that. That's something that I wish we had more dialogue with substantively from the Democratic side to find areas in HR2 that you'd be willing to support as well because, frankly, it is the substantive bill that needs to get passed. What we're trying to do by this resolution is to resound the alarm, and I'd sure like to uh, see that Democrats, some Democrats, admit that at least in part, if they would just say at least in part, I know, I believe it's uh, the primary cause, but at least in part is a result of the Biden administration policies for the past Three years.
8: I, I would say this, uh, you know, because you referenced HR two, and there's been so much emphasis on, you know, the part of my colleagues on their side of the aisle about HR two. You all are very proud of of that bill, and as the ranking member referenced the, the call that you all apparently had with the speaker, and you know, various takes on uh, what happened on that call. But pretty clear that the vast majority of your conference refuses to do anything on immigration uh, and immigration reform, border security, with the exception of HR2. That that's essentially your, you know, that it, it's it's that or nothing, right? I mean, that's the position oh, that's, that I've certainly heard from.
10: I'm sorry that that's the public perception, but frankly, uh, the Republicans uh, are doing I think a, a lot in a different, a lot of different arenas to try to move the ball forward, and willing to engage in substantive discussion. But well, I, I, haven't we'll, heard, I haven't heard, I haven't heard one Democrat we'll say that there's any part of HR 2 that they would support. I'd like to understand if there's portions of HR 2 that Democrats, on whole, would say, you know what, we agree with this portion. But so far, what I hear is we're just not going to accept anything from HR 2.
8: Well, I think, as you know, obviously we all know that the senators are engaged in a robust debate right now. Uh, in a negotiation. And so we'll, we'll have an opportunity to uh, to test this hypothesis in a few weeks. But anyway, thank, thank you. you for the exchange. Appreciate the time. I yield thank back. You. Knowledge.
0: Thank you very much. Gentle lady from Minnesota is recognized for any questions she may have for the panel.
7: Thank you, Mr. Chair. And I just want to say thank you to uh, Mr. Moran for bringing this forward because I think that this is one of the things, the border is one of the things that I hear about when I go home. And they talk about it because of the fentanyl, because of the public safety issues that it creates. And so we need to make sure that we, uh, that we are talking about it and doing what we can about it. And I always appreciate when Dr. Burgess uh, talks so passionately about the, about the border issues uh, and bringing them forward. So thank you, to you for bringing it. And with that, I yield back.
0: Thank you very much. Gentle lady from New Mexico is recognized for any questions she may have for the panel.
9: Thank you, Mr. Chair, and as uh, the Latina on the panel, as well as the representative of a border state, and I represent counties that uh, border the, uh, the Mexico border, as well as, sadly, counties that border Texas. Uh, and uh, I will say that I did want to introduce into the record, Mr. Chairman, uh, fact check. Asylum seekers regularly attend immigration court hearings.
0: Oh, without objection.
9: Thank you. And there have been uh, decades of studies that show that asylum seekers regularly do attend court hearings. You know, 11 year study, 15 year study, you know, uh, shorter term studies. Uh, asylum seekers are serious uh, and they attend their court hearings. Our problem is we don't have enough of them. And I think that that was the point that Representative Nadler was making. Uh, there was also another fact check that says that many asylum seekers actually do when you actually look at who actually applies uh, and is moved into and and uh, moves through the process, not those who are rejected at first. Uh, that's about 32%. So when you actually have the resources to actually do your asylum process, 32% is a high rate, I think. Um, but what's really problematic problematic for me about this resolution is what we've been talking about, that it does nothing but continue a rhetoric which has an incredibly hateful side to it. The Republican, likely Republican nominee for president, has stated that immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country echoing Mein Kampf, echoing a period in history when the call to hate somebody, to hate somebody who wasn't like you, led to World II, led to Nazism. And this concept of saying open borders or invasions lead to death when people show up and murder Mexicans. Mexican-Americans and others in border towns. They lead to incredible rise in hate crimes, lead to rise in anti-Semitism. And they forget about the benefits that immigrants actually bring to this country. And undocumented immigrants who are right now caring for our elderly, caring for our children, picking the food that you will eat tonight, And so I think that that is part of the problem with a resolution like this that does nothing to solve the problem, uh, but just feeds into a sense of divisiveness. And what I like about what we are trying to do is actually look towards a vision where we become a more inclusive society, where we honor those who contribute to the society, and where we actually do things like, say, the $16 billion that the president wants that Uh, Representative Nadler talked about, that actually would address some of the problems. And that this is not doing any of that. And so with that, that is one of my major problems. Uh, That is actually part of it all, is this divisiveness that this is really intended. I think maybe you didn't intend it, but this divisiveness that this feeds into. and with that, Mr. Chairman, I'll yield back.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, before we go to uh, Mr. Langworthy at the end of the table for his questions, I want to make an observation that relates specifically to my friend from New York who made an extra effort to get here. If he weren't here, we wouldn't be able to conclude the hearing tonight. <laughs> Thank so you. So we are all incredibly grateful for that. But as I looked around this room earlier today or thought about, this room, I've spent a lot of the last weekend, like a lot of Americans, watching the NFL playoff. And I have to tell you, it's not been a very good result for most of us on the Rules Committee. Uh, if you're like my friend from Texas or me from Oklahoma, and I assume Mr. Roy, it was pretty disgusting what, what happened to Dallas or what they did to themselves. I don't blame anybody. I think they have to step up and take responsibility. Disappointing, I'd say. And I think of my friends from Pennsylvania, and they had to watch both the Steelers and the Eagles go down. I think of my friend, the ranking member, who's not used to watching a playoff without the Patriots in it. I can go around the table now. Colorado, still, you know, we'll see. The only guy that had a good night was Langworthy. So when this hearing concludes, I'm going to invite you and any others who care to attend the chairman's office, because I have a special presentation in honor of your Buffalo Bills who delivered an extraordinary performance, and Josh Allen was unbelievable, but honestly you guys were unbelievable across the thing, so thanks for not being hungover and delirious and in (laughs) Buffalo or we would not be able to finish this hearing tonight, but I'm serious. I thought about this, I went out and got the present today. It will honor both you and the Buffalo Bill. Can you drink it or smoke it? You certainly can drink it. (laughs) (laughs) So with that, uh, I want to uh, recognize my good friend from New York and thank him for being
5: here. Well, I I am thrilled. And and should we continue to go and and finish this journey with the Buffalo Bills, we're going to petition the state government to put, replace some of the New York statues in the Capitol and one of Josh Allen, I think would be the rightful place at the Capitol. Um, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, To my colleagues on the other side of the aisle who have alleged that this resolution before us is meaningless or pointless, I'd like to remind them of the following. Uh, On May 10th of 2023, House Republicans passed H.R. 2, uh, the Secure the Border Act to tighten the asylum standards, criminalize visa overstays, support our border patrol agents, In short, House Republicans passed legislation to end this crisis at our southern border. And in that very month, we had 200,000 illegal alien encounters at the southwest border. Yet that did not stop the Biden administration and Senate Democrats from falling all over themselves, declaring that legislation dead on arrival. And it's also worth noting that, um, from what we've heard on the other side here this afternoon, that House Republicans have included the highest level ever of spending for Border Patrol, $496 million in this year's DHS appropriations bill. That's worth noting as people want to talk about funding. Um, On May 25th, House Republicans passed the Halt Fentanyl Act to support our law enforcement in the face of a flood of lethal fentanyl pouring across our borders. Uh, In 2023 alone, more than 112,000 Americans, mainly young people, many people of color, died of overdoses primarily caused by fentanyl. Now, we've seen these numbers on the rise for years, breaking records and destroying communities. But none of this stopped more than half of House Democrats from voting no on the Holt-Fentanyl Act. On July 19, 2023, House Republicans passed the Schools Not Shelters Act to prohibit the use of public schools as shelters for illegal immigrants to instead keep those schools open for our children, and House Democrats loudly opposed this bill and openly mocked it right here in this very room. Yet just last week, in the opposition of local residents, James Madison High School in Brooklyn was closed to students. Students sent home and put on remote learning to make room for sheltering 2,000 illegal immigrants. The students were told to contact their teachers virtually if they needed help with that schoolwork. Haven't we seen that before? And how that works out. Uh, On November 30th, 2023, House Republicans passed the Protecting Our Communities from Failure to Secure the Border Act to ensure that illegal immigrants aren't crowded into tent cities on federal lands like they have on Floyd Bennett Field. Numerous accounts from the migrants housed there mentioned how children shivered at night in these makeshift shelters, but House Democrats voted no on stopping this asinine policy. House Republicans have time and again pushed for meaningful solutions in the face of an administration that refuses to do anything to solve or even acknowledge the extent of the national security and humanitarian crisis that we have here on our hands. We have passed legislation over the loud opposition uh, of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, yet time and again we have been told that these measures are dead on arrival. The bottom line is this. President Biden deserves our full condemnation for his unwillingness to address the crisis at our borders uh, to stop the flood of illegal immigrants and lethal drugs into this country. Mr. Chairman, I yield back.
0: Thank you very much, and I want to thank both our witnesses for a robust discussion. We uh, always expect that when Mr. Nadler comes, and always... uh, welcome thing to hear and, Mr. Moran, come see us more often. We appreciate you and your first appearance here as well. Our witnesses are excused. Okay. The chair will be in receipt of a motion from the gentlelady from Minnesota, Ms. Fishlock.
7: Thank you, Mr. Chair. I move the committee grant H.R. 6914, the Pregnant Students' Rights Act, a closed rule, the rule waives all points of order against consideration of the bill. The rule provides the amendment in the nature of a substitute recommended by the Committee on Education and, the, and Workforce, now printed in the bill, shall be considered as adopted, and the bill as amended shall be considered as read. The rule waives all points of order against provisions in the bill as amended. The rule provides one hour of general debate, equally divided and controlled by the chair and the ranking minority member of the Committee on Education and the Workforce or their respective designees. The rule provides one motion to recommit. The rule further provides for consideration of HR 6918, the Supporting Pregnant and Parenting Women and Families Act under a closed rule. The rule waives all points of order against consideration of the bill. The rule provides that an amendment in the nature of a substitute consisting of the text of the rules committee print uh, 118-20 shall be considered as adopted, and the bill as amended shall be considered as read. The rule waives all points of orders against provisions in the bill as amended. The rule provides one hour of general debate, equally divided and controlled by the chair and the ranking minority member of the committee on ways and means or their respective designees. The rule provides one motion to recommit. The rule further provides for consideration of Res 957 denouncing the Biden administration's open border policies, condemning the national security and public safety crisis along with the southwest border and urging President Biden to end his administration's open border policies under a closed rule. The rule provides that upon adoption of this resolution, it shall be an order without intervention of any point of order to consider H.R.E.S. 957. The rule provides that the resolution shall be read as considered as read. Finally, the rule provides one hour of general debate equally divided and controlled by the chair and ranking minority member of the committee on judiciary or their respective designees.
0: Thank you very much. You've now heard the motions. Is there any discussion or amendment to the rule? Here, hearing no requests for further amendments, the question is on the motion to report. All those in favor signify by saying aye. Aye. Those opposed say no. No. The opinion of the chair, the ayes have it. The chairman asks for a recorded vote. Uh, recorded vote's been requested. The clerk will call the rule. Mr. Burgess.
4: Burgess votes, aye.
0: Mr. Burgess, aye. Mr. Rushenthaler, aye. Mr. Rushenthaler, aye. Ms. Fishbach, aye. Miss Fishbach, aye. Mr. Massey, Mr. Norman, Mr. Roy, Mrs. Haukian, Mr. Langworthy, aye. Mr. Langworthy, aye. Mr. McGovern, no. Mr. McGovern, no. Miss Scanlon, no. Miss Scanlon, no. Mr. Nagoose, no. Mr. Nagoose, no. Miss Leisure Fernandez, no. Miss Leisure Fernandez, no. Mr. Chairman, finally get the cast a decisive yes. vote. Aye. (laughs) Mr. Chairman, aye. The Clerk will report the total. Five yeas, four nays. The ayes have it. The motion to report is agreed to. Accordingly, Ms. Fishbach will be managing the rule for the majority. And Ms. Scanlon for the minority. That would be a good debate. Uh, With that, thank you all for your patience, and thank all of you for taking the time to get here. I know it was very difficult in many, many cases, so I appreciate that. And you really were the cavalry, Mr. Langworthy, so thank you for showing up. at the. At the last minute. I usually, as a Native American, don't have a lot of good things to say about the Calvary, but <laughs> tonight uh, you did it and it saved us all. So thank you very much, and uh, hearing is adjourned.